Practices Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. T.S. Eliot, is it possible to predict molecular biomarkers from H&E sections through deep learning and computer vision? After all, the hemotoxylin and eosin section was one of the first tools in our arsenal. Molecular diagnostics came center stage in the 1990s and 2000s. Can we now go back to the H&E and predict the molecular features? Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest is Heather Couture from Pixel Ciencia, where she accelerates machine learning projects for pathology startups. Heather has a PhD in computer science and has published in top-tier computer vision and medical imaging journals. She is the host of the Impact AI podcast and writes regularly on LinkedIn for her newsletter, Pathology ML Insights, and for a variety of publications. We're going to be talking about artificial intelligence and computer vision in digital pathology. First of all, what do we even mean by artificial intelligence? What's the difference between AI, a computer program, or simply just crunching large amounts of data? How do we develop tools for digital pathology? What are some of the challenges and pitfalls? And yes, the V word, what do we mean by validation? How do we go about validation in the digital era? And finally, what about those pesky pre-analytical factors? Will it even be possible to develop new tools without standardizing or accounting for variability in pre-analytical factors such as tissue processing, staining, and scanning. Heather Couture from Pixel Ciencia. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Really excited to have you on. I think in digital pathology, a big component of what we do, or we're being told that the future is all going to be wrapped up in artificial intelligence. And to me, that's kind of a loaded term. And, you know, we hear it discussed, tossed around so frequently and so loosely. And to me, I just don't, I don't get it because I don't really understand. I mean, I'm not sure that I've actually seen it what could truly be described as artificial intelligence in action. In my mind, artificial intelligence, so the definition we hear is something along the lines of, well, it's it's a part of machine learning that can evolve and learn independent of a human being. The concept of intelligence is somehow replicates what a human being does. How about from you? Can you maybe give us your definition or how you see artificial intelligence and how would you distinguish it from just like a simple computer algorithm where you have branch decision making or just a lot of data in people's minds could be construed as artificial intelligence because it's just way too complicated for a human being to handle but what do we what exactly do we mean by ai so to me artificial intelligence means intelligence demonstrated by machines so things like problem solving planning perception Today, AI is used in many of the software systems we interact with on a regular basis. So speech recognition like Siri or Alexa, recommendation systems like Netflix, Amazon, or YouTube, search engines, and some, some newer cars, uh, driving assistance systems like collision avoidance, all those are forms of AI. AI is a very broad term. So within that, there's much more specific buzzwords like machine learning, computer vision, deep learning that, that you know, are, speak to different ways of accomplishing that, that intelligence. There's this idea of generalized artificial intelligence versus very narrow, specific applications. With what we do, I mean, are we talking about very narrow, specific applications? General AI 
doesn't really exist, at least not yet. Maybe it will someday in the future, but that's very much up for debate. Narrow AI, as in applying it to very specific application and getting useful outputs, that's what we are talking about. And that's what's being applied in different uh, pathology applications today. You know, they also call them algorithms. So let's say we have an algorithm that helps to identify prostate cancer. The way this algorithm is developed, I'm guessing, is that it identifies histologic features such as the size, the shape of the nucleus, maybe the roundness, the irregularity of the chromatin, whether or not glands are fusing together, and so on, things like that, which was coded perhaps by a human being. What's the difference between like a computer program and artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence would usually be implemented as software, so a computer program possibly combined with hardware. The setup that you described there with replicate, at least attempting to replicate what a pathologist does using software, using algorithms. So, you know, replicating the different properties of tissue that, that they look at and then making an output, is this cancer or not, or, you know, predicting grade or some, some other application like that. That can be done by following those um, detailed steps a, a pathologist does in trying to replicate that. It can also be done by taking an image or a large set of images with annotations and trying to learn how to get from the input image to the output that you desire. In that scenario, there's a learning component. And in the first scenario, there could also be a learning component. Uh, it depends on how you implement it. So you might capture all those individual characteristics, like the size and shape of individual nuclei. And from that, you might say, if this num you know, this fraction of the nuclei are larger than this amount, then we're going to predict cancer. So that, that would be an example of an expert system where a human expert decides exactly what should be looked at and exactly what decisions should be made. On the other hand, if you use those sim same features, and you let an algorithm make the decisions, so let it compute all the features and let it decide based on multiple characteristics how to get to the output, which um, size and shape and texture and spatial arrangement features are important for assigning the label cancer. Then you've got a learning component and that that's, falls into the bucket of machine learning as opposed to expert systems. So is that similar to the idea of supervised versus unsupervised learning? That is an example of supervised. Unsupervised might be you use those same features and you cluster all your samples of tissue. You know, maybe you've arbitrarily decided you've got three clusters and you place them into different buckets. And then maybe it turns out that one of those clusters is not cancer and one is high grade and one is low grade. Maybe you get lucky and get that clustering, but maybe you get unlucky and maybe it's divides your samples based on the intensity of the stains and you don't actually get a useful output. Yeah, so how do we get to learning? That's kind of what I envision as artificial intelligence is where there's learning that's independent of a human being. How do we get there? And are we actually seeing products on the market right now that utilize that? So learning requires typically lots of data and in the case of supervised learning, it also requires labeled annotations, whether that's this patient has cancer, this other one doesn't, or these pixels are associated with this tissue type and these other pixels are a different tissue type. There's different levels of annotation there. But if you have that training data, then you can train an algorithm 
that will learn the patterns to predict the output from the input. There are definitely products on the market. You know, Page recently came out with the prostate product that, that uses machine learning. There's, I don't, don't recall which other ones have, have received FDA clearance at this point. I know it's very new that in outside pathology, there's definitely a, a numbers that, number that are being used. Now you're a consultant and you work with a variety of startups on AI and computer vision projects. Maybe tell us specifically what you do, you know, how you go about it, what kinds of problems you're trying to solve and what kind of solutions you offer. I work with pathology startups to get them to market faster by building more generalizable machine learning models. These are companies who are building their own machine learning models rather than using existing toolkits like Hello or VisioFarm. And that means they're typically trying to do something that hasn't been done before. So I work with them in the strategy and advising capacity to tackle things like properly validating their models, understanding variations in the data, batch effects, potential biases, to make sure they're applying the most appropriate types of algorithms for the unique characteristics of their pathology images. Machine learning is very experimental, so this helps to reduce wasted time on unsuccessful approaches and create more, more robust models overall. And so when you develop a tool that incorporates general learning, that would be completely different than a company coming to you and say, hey, could you help us replicate the thing that human beings are already doing? So like in prostate cancer, could you help us find cancer and give it a Gleason score? Or in any other kind of cancer? Could you help us find the cancer and grade it using the same systems people have been using for the last 50 years? Versus could you come up with something completely different that will be useful you know, and predictive or prognostic? Do you kind of encounter that distinction? Both of those can involve a machine learning components. That can mean deep learning or it can mean the replicating what the pathologist does with the, the specific characteristics they look for. Either of those can fall into the learning component. A lot of my work, because it is new applications, a lot of that is predictive and prognostic, but not exclusively. So for example, one client is developing a new medical imaging device to look at tissue using a different multispectral analysis. And it's not H&E, it's not any of the standard modalities, and they're just trying to detect cancer. In that case, even though there are other modalities you can easily detect cancer, um, you know, this new one that could be used in uh, during surgery in an operating room, that's still very much R&D and very much experimental and very much exploratory with machine learning. Yeah, so maybe kind of walk us through how you go about developing a product or a a model or starting from the very early concept and then kind of the steps you have to go through, you know, to, to turn it into a product? The first piece is just coming up with a use case, figuring out what it is you're trying to develop, what disease you're tackling, what it is you're trying to, if it's in the case of machine learning, what it is you're trying to predict, what type of imagery you're going to be using, how it's going to be used in the clinical workflow to be sure that it's going to fit in. The next very early step, um, at least anytime I'm, I'm involved, is usually a literature review. So understanding what has been done in, in the research literature in any similar application it doesn't need to be the same disease or the same type of imagery or same kind of output that you're trying to predict. But anything that's related can tell you what's worked before, what hasn't, what the challenges are how much data you might need. All those are very important questions to get some idea on from the beginning. 
what makes it hard or what, where, you know, what, what are some of the pitfalls and where, where do you see things going off, off track? The pitfalls in training an algorithm is going to depend on probably what kind of data you can get. For rare diseases, you might not be able to get very much data. That's going to be a challenge from the beginning. doesn't mean it's roadblock. It might mean that you need to be more careful in analyzing that data. It's a problem across your medical applications in particular, as opposed to other types of imagery. For example, photographs, it's quite easy to get millions of images, not so much in the case of medical applications where you might have a few hundred or a few thousand patients at best. And these images are very large. They're very high resolution, a lot of data from that perspective to work with. But if you have few patients, the images may not be diverse enough to cover a lot of the variations you see in appearance across medical centers and patients. Dealing with large images comes with its own challenge in in how to process them and how to handle them efficiently, how to annotate them. You know, more generally in uh, developing machine learning products, both for pathology and, and more across other applications, you need to make sure that the solution you're developing is relevant and will fit in with the clinical workflow so that provide the right kind of assistance to doctors and patients. And for someone like me with a machine learning background and no medical experience, I can't determine that. That's out of my domain. So you need experts from a variety of application areas to be able to come together and figure out what you can do how it should work, and are you actually solving a problem that's important? Starting with the unmet need, right? So you're starting with a problem that needs to be solved. You know, having a problem in in terms of a in search of a solution, you know, rather than rather than vice versa, and then creating something that can actually fit into clinical workflows. I've kind of seen things go off the rails at, at both ends. There, I couldn't agree more. So, and so, what do we mean by? Validation. You know, we call it the V word. People throw it around a lot in, you know, particularly in pathology, but in all of medicine. There's even different types of validations, like analytical validation or clinical validation. You know, which in my mind roughly means something like, well, we have a gold standard, or we have a claim that we're trying to make, and then we need to prove or show or demonstrate that our product performs and you know meets the you know above a certain threshold to meet the the claim. So on any machine learning related product, all of what you said applies, um, but more specifically to the model itself, it's checking that the output your model produces is accurate. So if we're predicting, is this cancer or not? What fraction of the time does it get it right? And there's various metrics that can be used to measure that, and each is good for different purposes. It's really just checking the accuracy of your models. And ideally, this is done on data that's similar to the data your model will see once it's deployed. So not just on your clean training test sets, not just on images that were collected from the lab you've been developing everything on, ideally on patients and data that was imaged from a different scanner, different medical center, wherever your model will need to work in the real world. That's a big theme in clinical medicine or clinical trials is right. how does the real world experience match up to the clinical trial experience? It often comes under attack. You know, we'll say, well, that that's great. It worked in your very limited setting, but how is it going to work in the real world or in my clinic? What are some of the challenges you see in validating the model? So you mentioned matching the real world experience to the trial experience, but are there some others? Probably the primary one is just getting enough data and annotations. And, and of course, that's going to vary depending on your application. For, for some, it's going to be easy to go out and 
get more data for others, like rare diseases, it's going to be much more challenging. So you need to get those data. You need to have it annotated. Ideally, you're collecting this, like I said, from external cohorts. The other challenge that comes in, particularly for pre predictive and prognostic models, is the lack of detailed annotations. So for example, you know outcome for that particular patient, but you don't know which parts of that H&E whole slide image are associated with that output. All you know is that patients lived or died after five years, for example. So you can validate the output of the model on the whole slide, but you can't validate which part of the slide contributed to that. And often these models will show intermediate output like heat maps to identify which part of the tissue is associated with, with the prediction. In that setting, we can't validate those. They're, they're useful for analysis. They're interesting, but we can't validate them. That's a fascinating point. I think particularly in pathology, we think we know what causes accounting for the effect. We think we know what histologic features are accounting for this patient's outcome. We think, oh yeah, it's the tumor. It's the grade of the tumor. It's how dark the nucleus is, you know, it's the grit, but it could be so many other things that are on the slide. For example, the stroma, the inflammatory response, the condition of the surrounding normal tissue, or, you know, so many other things. How do we go about addressing that issue? It's the good old fashioned scientific method, come up with a hypothesis and prove or disprove it. But then there's like the unknown unknowns. It's like, there's so much information in there that a human being can't even see. So is that kind of where machine learning can help us? With that type of model, there will always be some unknowns. Some of the things that you mentioned there, like making sure that those intermediate outputs of your model, those heat maps, match up with what pathologists understand about the images. If there's tumor and non-tumor, is it the tumor part ideally is mostly associated with the, the outcome? At least making sure to the best of our ability that the parts of the slides that the models highlight make sense and don't go against current thinking. And maybe sometimes they'll teach us something new, but if that's the case, then that kind of study would need to be replicated on different data sets to make sure that that new thing we've learned isn't just some random thing that that model happened to, to pick up on. Variability in H&E staining and different scanners and so on, I would kind of lump that into what I would call pre-analytic variability. People are so excited about digital pathology and the promise that it offers where we're going to come up with these new algorithms, new tools to help us, but yet we forget about the pre-analytic variability that different tissue is handled different ways. There's different recipes for H&E stainings. There's slides that have been sitting around for five years, five months, five days, stain fades. The scanners work differently. You know, So all of these pre-analytic factors. How big of a deal do you think that is in terms of validating a model? And you think it's it's been overlooked? People kind of get excited and, and forget or discount those factors? It definitely has been overlooked in a lot of research so far in product world and, and startups and so on. It's a much larger emphasis on it than there used to be, but there's still a lot of research coming out of universities that doesn't validate against these types of variations. Maybe they don't even have an external cohort of data. So that's something that's starting to change, but needs to move along, be sure these models are robust, because otherwise they might be picking up on something that's not what we want the models to pick up on. But overall, as to how important that variability is, it also depends on the use case of the algorithm. 
if it's something that will operate in a central lab with a single scanner and close monitoring of the staining procedures, there, there will be less variation. But if the model needs to handle a variety of scanners, medical centers, plus variations in staining in a single lab over time, that is a much bigger challenge. Overall, these models perform well on data similar to the data they were trained on. But when the images change, all bets are off. That's when models fail, often in unpredictable ways. And what I mean by that is that you might get an output that you don't expect or that you don't even know that your output is garbage. So if, if your input changes, you can't rely on the output. So the first step is understanding the variability in your data. So variations in sample preparation, staining, image acquisition, different patient populations. Once you understand the variations, you can make decisions on how to handle them. So for example, gathering a more diverse training set or normalizing your images so the stain color looks similar or simulating a range of stain intensities in your existing training set or training models that are more invariant to these variations, meaning that they learn the relevant features instead of the irrelevant ones. But the most important part still is validation. So gathering those external cohorts of data from scanners and labs that your model will see in the real world, measuring how it performs, and as machine learning model development goes, iterating and improving as needed. So there's a lot of solutions just in there that I would have never even thought of. I think that's good news on this front, you know, that we're, we can overcome that hurdle by proper design of the study and then by all these methods to kind of normalize the staining to, to itself in other cases in the study. One thing you're interested in is, you know, speaking of H&E staining, is this idea of being able to predict molecular markers from H&E features. I think we kind of went through what I call a golden age of molecular pathology in the late 90s and 2000s and, and beyond, right, where we're so focused on these molecular features. And then with the advent of sequencing, even, even more so, that, that the molecular features have to be, you know, the holy grail of information, so to speak. But if you think about it, there's the protein product, which we're looking at under the microscope, is actually, you know, further down the line in terms of the central dogma of, of biology, DNA to RNA to protein. And we know there's so much rich information wrapped up in that H&E slide. So how did you ever get interested in the idea of predicting molecular markers from H&E features? The first project I worked on during my PhD was on predicting mutation status of melanoma from H&E images. So we first tried with traditional computational pathology methods like segmenting individual cells and nuclei, capturing their size, shape, texture, spatial arrangements, st standard approaches at the time. And we tried to use those to predict mutation status, but we were unsuccessful. And we moved on to a project with more data, which at that time was breast cancer and continued to work on that. And this time we were, instead of predicting mutations, we were trying to predict genomic subtypes from, from H&E. And the toolkits for deep learning had recently become available. So I, I started my PhD in, in 2012, was when deep learning came on the scene. By about 2014, 2015, there were toolkits to make this more accessible. And so we started using those on this breast cancer project. And we were successful on, on that one, unlike with melanoma. That particular project became the focus of my PhD research. It makes sense, or it's intuitive to any pathologist who you know has looked at enough breast cases or other tumor types, you know, that they begin to say, "Well, I can recognize." I mean, even the you know the triple negative or the basaloid morphology that after you see enough, you can say, "Okay, that's looks like a triple negative case." We know that 
ER negative cases are associated with higher grade tumors. You know, so it, it does make sense to us and we've seen it in action. Where do you think this is going to lead? Is it going to lead to more cost-effective ways of doing things, perhaps because we don't have to do all these fancy molecular tests and we can extract this information from the H&E features? Is it going to give us more robust predictive and prognostic information? Where do you see this niche headed? It could be an alternative for those expensive and, and time-consuming tests. It can also be a screening method for them. It can be used to select which tests are appropriate for a particular patients. The challenge is that some of these molecular tests take two weeks, whereas with a digital whole slide image, you can run an algorithm in a matter of minutes. And the algorithm results can guide which molecular tests are worth performing for more definitive results. Or in a low-resource setting, it could provide an alternative to them. It can also be a better way to understand intratumoral heterogeneity, because the algorithm can make local predictions over the whole slide image. We, we talked before about how you can't validate those with uh, most of these biomarkers. But if you can predict the presence of intratumoral heterogeneity, then that uh, might provide additional information on you know, figuring out which further tests or how to treat the patient. Not only does digital pathology offer the promise of so much rich information, but it can be done almost instantaneously once we develop the proper tools and, and algorithms, which I think is a huge advantage. So tell us about yourself. How did you get interested in digital pathology and AI? Well, for me, it happened in the reverse, first, first AI and then digital pathology. So I became interested in image analysis during an internship that I did in, in, in undergrad. So this was for a, a company that did uh, machine vision systems integration. So things like inspecting parts on a manufacturing line to find defects. So I was about halfway through undergrad at the time that I did that internship. And after that, started looking for courses on pattern recognition and AI and computer vision. That led me to a master's program at Carnegie Mellon, where I was applying machine learning to detect rocks and detect and classify rocks, so something that could be used on a future Mars rover. So I've been in the AI world for, for a while now. Uh, so tell us, what, what excites you and where, where do you see the field headed in the next 10 years or so? I'm hesitant to guess where things will be at 10 years from now. That's because deep learning first really appeared 10 years ago this year in the computer vision research community. There were many years of neural network research before that that led to this, but this was the first major success that began to convince researchers that deep learning was worth trying. So now, 10 years later, we have many applications that wouldn't be possible with, without deep learning, and not only in pathology, the AI technologies we talked about earlier, like speech recognition and driving assistance wouldn't be possible. Predicting molecular biomarkers has only become possible because of deep learning. I started my PhD in 2012 before deep learning toolkits were available. Once they became available, that predicting molecular biomarkers has become possible. All this is to say that I think we'll all be surprised by the technology advances 10 years from now. But on the more practical side, I'm already seeing the field stepping past the question of whether it's possible to solve a particular task with AI and focusing more on how to do the task robustly. Heather Couture from Pixel Ciencia, thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Check us out at digitalpathologytoday.com. Thanks for listening.